Simon Rimmer and this is The Best of Grilling, the podcast brought to you in association with Weber Barbecues, in which I've been chatting with some of our best of chefs about their passion for cooking. Season one really has been a who's who of contemporary cuisine, from Michelin-sod superstars like Marcus Waring, Paul Ainsworth and Tom Kerridge, to long-established national treasures Ainsley Harriet, the Hairy Bikers and Rick Stein. Now, if you're new to the podcast, this episode should give you a flavour of what it's all about. And if you've been with us from the beginning, well, hopefully you'll enjoy revisiting some of my favourite moments from the series, which has been an absolute joy to put together. It really has. But before we sign off, I'll also reveal my favourite of the recipe challenges we set our guests, in which they had to sell me a dish they'd make on a barbecue this winter in a mere 45 seconds, with very, very mixed results, I can tell you. So without further ado, let's get cracking. With a clip of our very first guest on the show, Nadia Hussain. Among the many topics we covered were Nadia's battles with mental health, the pressure of being a role model, and of course, Bake Off. She's so much more than a baker, though, with food in her DNA. And if you're any doubt about that, well, how about this recollection about the day her father taught how to butcher a sheep? Oh, my dad's the best. Honestly, he's the best. We should have him on a podcast one day. He would just swear mostly, but he's hilarious. <laughs> he would You'd have to bleep him out all the time. He's just like he's just a wonderful human. He and he he did this. He's um he rang my mum. You know, when we had landlines and no mobiles. He rang my mum on the landline, used the butcher's phone and said, I'm coming. And the butchers were, I think it, it, you could throw a stone. It was five seconds from our house. So dad said, I'm coming. And and then, so my mom put the phone down and said, open the door, your dad's coming. And you, you could see her rolling her eyes thinking, what is he up to? And he said, clear the dining table. So mom's there clearing the dining, not really knowing, because he he's an eccentric. He's completely mad hatter, my dad is. Clear the dining table. So there he is, like literally five doors down the butchers and he's got the sheep on his back. And he's coming up and he's borrowed the butcher's jacket so he doesn't mess his clothes. So he's borrowed this oversized butcher's jacket, got the sheep on his back. And he's a small man, strong, but small. And he's dragging the sheep up and he's like, get out of my way. And everybody's out of the way. And then he smacks the sheep on the, on the dining table. And the week previous to this, we'd gone to a Sunday market and he'd been cleaning this chainsaw. And I didn't know what it was for, because what does my dad need a chainsaw for? We live in a terraced house in the heart of Luton. I was like, we have no oak trees or anything. No, we have no trees to take down. So I don't know what he needs a chainsaw for. That's what he needed the chainsaw for. So he said, who wants to learn how to butcher a sheep? And we're like, me, 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 me. I was always very enthusiastic. How old are you at this point? Like maybe 11, wow. maybe 12. <laughs> um, and he's like, who wants to watch me? And me and my brother, we were always really interested in everything my dad did. And the, the others were like, we're off. And they were off. And he showed us. And he said, how long do you think it'll take me to do this? And I said, uh, 10 minutes. He goes, don't be ridiculous. I said, one hour. He said, one hour, 20 minutes, and this will be done. And that was it. One hour, 20 minutes. He butchered the whole thing, by which time he had started a fire in the garden and put a pot on the fire, which was big enough to put three of his kids in. And then he cooked the whole thing, the whole thing. Ah, lovely Nadia, who I also discovered shares my love of ironing. Now, it's all about the top end of your shirts when you iron. It's not, not the collars, it's the yoke. Get those right and you'll always look smart. You can have that one for free. Now, ever wondered what it's like going round to Gok Wan's gaff for a bite to eat? Now, we all know about his credentials as a style guru, but not everyone is necessarily quite so aware as to how much he adores his food or what an incredible cook he is. Well, on the evidence of this description he gave me about his dinner parties, they sound like quite an experience. Okay, I suppose a slight difference with Southeast Asian food. So, for instance, I've got six friends, five friends, including me, six, tomorrow, coming over for dinner. 
and I'm, the reason I'm telling you that number is because obviously because of there the guidelines we're in at the moment. Mm-hmm. But, but that's also because for me, cooking for six people is virtually impossible. I find it really tricky. I want a minimum of eight to ten. Why? Because I like to spend the entire day on it. I like to do as many dishes as I possibly can so I can take them on a bit of a food journey. I like the different conversations. So I kind of organise the conversations around the food. And so, for instance, the first thing I'll do is a dumpling station tomorrow where people will have to make their own dumplings before they're cooked. And that starts off part of the conversation. That's the catch up. How are you? How's work? How are you coping? All that kind of thing. So it's very casual. That's before we've even got to the table. So I kind of organise the conversation and how the evening's going to flow around the food. And so, and so for me, cooking for six people, it's going to be just a sit down. There's, there's, there's too few people to do all that elaborate stuff. And so for me, in my mind, I am wanting to do a minimum of six to eight different dishes, then plus the carbohydrates so the sides and that kind of thing, then we'll go on to a dessert and then we've got the cocktails on top of it. And so for me, it's about taking people on a, a, a culinary journey. I know that if I'm creating something like a canton beef, which is quite um, sweet and acidic because of the tomatoes, what I'm going to do is I'm going to cut through to a very simple sea bass with ginger and spring onion because I want it to be clean after that. I don't want them to remember the beef canton. And then we're going to go over to the tofu and I'm going to do it with mung beans and some, I'm going to do fried tofu with malpal tofu on top of it. So it's really spicy. See, then you're getting a hit and you kind of want to build up their journey all the way through. And it's a little bit like going on a hike. And so you walk a little bit, then you run, then you fall down a mountain, then, you, then you're exhausted going at the top of the mountain, then you get to the top and you've got the euphoria of the spice. And so for me, that's really important on designing that menu. So there you have it. A night at Gox. I should add, he invited me over once and cancelled last minute or maybe just decided he doesn't like my company that much because there were loads of pictures on Instagram that night of cock with... Anyway, someone else who sounds like she knows how to serve up a feast is the absolutely delightful Rachel Koo. Now, having charmed viewers with her show, The Little Paris Kitchen, she now lives in Sweden and told me what we'll be eating when I pay her a visit. Okay, do you have dietary restrictions? No, good grief, Okay, no. just checking, what time of the year is it? Oh, my goodness. Okay, it's now. So it's it, now? It's autumn. Okay, yeah. are you coming to Sweden to see me? Fine, yeah, 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 yeah. obviously. <laughs> okay. So we're in the countryside. So yeah. I would offer you some game. Mm-hmm. So Sweden, very much part of Swedish culture, is game. It's local, moose, probably moose. And I do you a Hörmann's uh, beef, but oh with moose. God. Yeah. So it's, uh, but I do a version, yeah. So Hörmann's beef is a traditional Swedish dish. It's called sailor's beef, and it's the beef stew sailors would have in Sweden. But I would use moose, and so it's a slow-cooked moose in, like, red wine and juniper berries and herbs, and so it kind of, everything falls apart. And then wow. I do you um, potatoes mousse, uh, which is uh, uh, mashed potatoes with lots of butter, of course. Of course, yeah. Of <laughs> and course. then lingonberries and pickled cucumbers with dill. Um, so all kind of the Swedish flavors, really hearty, comforting. And then, um, oh, you know what? We could go fishing because we're okay. by the lake. We'll go fishing. We'll catch a perch. We'll put it on the barbecue. We'll make some fish wraps with can- uh, chanterelles because we can pick some chanterelles as well. Wow. So that would be for lunch. But in the afternoon, we'd go like foraging <laughs> and fishing and we would get some fish from the lake, some perch and some chanterelles and we'd fry the chanterelles in butter and we simply kind of put the perch on the on the barbecue and then you get some Swedish flatbreads and you put the perch in, great bit of horseradish on top, the sh- butter chanterelles in there, wrap it up and that would be like um, a little afternoon snack. 
slow-cooked moose stew and barbecue paste. That sounds delicious. Her take on food was far different than I was expecting. But I guess living in Scandinavia, you, you just get a whole different viewpoint. Rachel and I also talked at length about our mutual obsession with stationery. Uh, so do check that out for your pen and notepad tips too all about the quality of the paper and also that feel of a notebook. You know what I mean. Yeah, you do. You know what I mean. Ainsley Harriet is one of the most likeable, larger-than-life characters you could ever wish to meet. Now, what you see on TV is what you get in person. He's a tremendous raconteur and regaled us with anecdote after anecdote about his colourful life and time in the industry. He also brought in a quite wonderful heirloom that his grandfather gave his mother when she moved to Britain from Jamaica. I'm so thrilled to... Uh, to be able to bring this into you actually because um, it's like one of those things you have as a child that sort of just starts to break away or break down and this is a book that my grandfather when he went to America in the 1930s and he cooked at the White House we've uh, we still to this day have been trying to find out the real connection because when um, Obama was in power uh, we always thought what a great program idea yeah. my grandfather was here and I've come back you know 70 years or whatever it is later to be able to cook at the White House and uh, didn't materialise. We didn't have enough information and I certainly won't be going back in the immediate future. <laughs> I'll probably be thrown out. <laughs> so what's in the book? Get Tell us about out the book. of my White House. Um, this is a cookbook which is by, by Dr Chase that my grandfather C.T. Strudwick brought back to Jamaica, as I said, uh, probably in the late 30s, early 40s. And he put this in my mother's suitcase when she came to Britain. She came wow. to live in Britain in the late uh, 1940s, after the Second World War. And my mother, and do you know what's really beautiful about this here, side? Look at that. It's my mother's writing. Oh, that's is, so uh, lovely. In, in the book. This is some of her recipes and all the splashes and everything here. And it's a fascinating. And it's not only a book. The, the interesting thing about this is not only just a cookbook, it also explains about health things. So if you've got a bit of diarrhea or you've got a bit of pneumonia or something, it tells you... Uh, the... Only you would pick that <laughs> as, a, as a complaint. Of anything you could pick that's in that book, Ainsley's says oh, well, diarrhea well this, this is, it was such a big thing in those days and of course it's all there but um and what i love is when you flick through it i always discover something new and the most recent thing is we do forget that in those days there was no refrigeration yeah so they tell you how to put bicarb of soda into water in order to keep your butter firm because you don't want your butter melting in the middle of the summer. You know, it's stuff like Beautiful. this, which is, and great old recipes, different puddings, plum puddings and stuff like that. Just look at it. Look at it. It's so delicate. It's so lovely. It's so beautiful. It's so brown. It's so old. It's so mem memorable and treasurable. Show and tell with Ainsley there, who may or may not make a reappearance a little bit later because his attempt at the recipe challenge was pretty damn good, I can tell you. Now, Marcus Wormley and I first met when we competed against each other on the Great British Menu way back in 2006. It's fair to say he gave me an absolute pasting with a sensational custard tart he made, and people still ask me about that dish today. To be fair, he remains one of Britain's finest chefs to this day, so I can't grumble too much. He's also well known for his very up-and-down relationship with Gordon Ramsay, and we went into that at some length. I go into Gavroche, 24 chefs, three-star Michelin, they work all together as a unit the most unbelievable kitchen I'd ever, I'd ever walked into at that age. And it was chalk and cheese compared to the Savoy. But there was a big difference about that kitchen. 
it was about seriously one-on-one with the chef and it was about precision but in that kitchen there was one point of difference that stood out like nothing else which was Gordon Ramsay okay he was in there and he had just spent three years with Marco and so when I walked into that re- into that kitchen and saw that's my first service, there was also this one person that stood out head and shoulders from everyone else because he was trained to a different level. What was Gordon's role? What, what position was he in the he kitchen? He was the chef de party on the fish section at that point when right, I walked okay. in there. So he's still a relatively yeah, yeah. kind of, you know, middling to, to low-ranking chef Another at that level. point. Another level. Oh, he, he, he stood out because those are the two things that, that I put, talked to my dad about that night. One was the, my first day at Gavroche, the job that my father made me go and get. Yeah. And this guy, this bloke that was in the kitchen, and I told my dad about this guy, and he said, well, why does he different? I said, Dad, the precision, the focus, the attention to it, the speed. He cooked, he cooked the kitchen under the table. Wow. And he said, mate, he said, there's one thing you should do with people like that. He said, take note, pay attention, and don't let him out of your sights. Stick with him. So go on then. Oh, my dad so... is at the back end of all my decisions. Yeah, and, and I love that. And it, it, it's funny because... He's a wise old man. Yeah. He's an old-fashioned old man. And, you know, kids of today need guidance. They need to listen to an older owl, an older owl of time and age. They're important. You may not like what they say, but they're important and they have real value. Kids don't like that today. I really enjoyed chatting with Marcus, who was incredibly candid about how the pursuit of perfection has shaped his life and where it's left him now. Right, time for a gear change with a couple of proper jokers. Harry Bikers Dave Myers and Cy King have been regulars on our screen since 2004, when they wowed us with their heady mix of wit, charm and culinary excellence, not to mention motorcycles and harebrained adventures. They are a proper riot. With a background to the pilot for their very first show in Portugal, telling us all we need to know about their unique appeal. In those days, we used to do everything ourselves. Yeah. We, we had no researchers, no associate producers. We went out there, we, 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 we found out that food was always going to be the currency that drove the trip. Yeah. It's never going to be a food programme, we're going to cook on the way. We managed to get a couple of motorbikes off Triumph. And then we found out that outside of Lisbon is a museum dedicated to the lobotomy. There's this man called Igas Mones in the 1930s won a Nobel Peace Prize for perfecting the lobotomy with an ice pick. Now, his, his home is a museum. And bleach. Yeah, you used to bleach your brain. But, but his house is a museum to the lobotomy in primitive neurosurgery. You could have to go, wouldn't you? You'd have to go. But in his if, office. If you've, just, if you've just linked into this kind of podcast at this exact point, you're not actually listening to an episode of Would I Lie to You? This is no, a... no, this is true. It's true, it's true. But... But in his office, there's a chair that's riddled with bullet holes where one of his patients recovered and shot him. So we thought we'd go there. Then we discovered that there was some web-footed poodles that exist in the south of Portugal, the descendants of the poodles that the Romans bred to drive fish into the fishing nets. True. So basically, around the Museum of the Lobotomy, the web-footed poodles, which we found do exist with webbed paws, and we swam with them. Well, they, well, well, no. We say that. Yeah, we were halfway to Flame in Morocco because of the flow tubes that you. Bought. We were in rubber, those, those fishing rubber tubes. <laughs> you know the rubber. We went, yeah, we went, yeah, we went to the Mediterranean, <laughs> and they, they took these web-footed poodles off a speedboat. And they didn't bloody like it. Did oh, they, they, they were straight onto they our panicked. tubes. They panicked. <laughs> we're, we're, I'm it's like the cruel sea surrounded by web-footed poodles. <laughs> 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 it was mental. Brilliant. Yeah, Dave. How do we get back? 
where you've got a paddock. We had these big flippers on underneath, so it looked quite serene, but our legs, because we got caught with a current, were going 60 to the dozen underneath. Great. It was hilarious. Yeah, I remember the, 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 the speedboat came back. We had yeah. one boat. It took the poodles, so we've got to get the poodles in. But left uh, us? And we, we were left out. In fact, they, I was the one that was left to last. You did? They, they towed to you in. He was halfway was... to Tangier. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but we literally, uh, that, that, that was the first programme and it went out. It was one hour fully funded. We delivered it Christmas Eve 2004 and the BBC loved it and so yeah. they put it out January the 6th. So, well, how do we, does anybody know it's on? And oh, um, yeah. Nancy Brown Smith, oh, she she uh, she was brilliant. We were a huge death TV reviewer. Yeah. yeah, she she was just great. Oh, she was so good to us. And and, and she just said, uh, and, and this is not a, a this is rather not a breath of fresh air. But who blew uh, who blew the bloody doors off? Honestly, of of all the episodes, we laughed so much right the way through that. Company of those two is just a great great way to spend your time. Do do have a listen to that full episode. It's brilliant. That said, Michael Mate Paul Ainsworth has a pretty good sense of humour too. While he may have earned a thoroughly well-deserved Michelin star for his restaurant number six in Padstow, he's no snob when it comes to what he eats. What are we having after night in the beers? Here's what. All right, we are going. I am going to take you. We're 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 pretty gone. We've yeah. had a gr- we've had a cracking night, <laughs> yeah. and me and you are going to KFC. Yeah, and I'm gonna I'm gonna order you a Zinger Tower. But what 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 you you got to be in the know? A Zinger Tower with bacon and cheese add on and an extra hash brown in it. All right, <laughs> and then we're gonna get the KFC gravy. Okay, <laughs> and then once we've had a couple of bites of that burger, there's a nice there's a nice zing with the Zinger Burger, believe it or not, right? <laughs> We're then going to dip it in that KFC gravy and we're just going to be living the dream, having a nice time. And like, we're going to be getting that proper, dirty, filthy American thin sliced cheese. With, oh man, with that chicken, bacon, the bun, loads of mayonnaise. Paul Ainsworth there leading us very nicely into our next guest on grilling, who happens to be godfather to Paul's kid. Tom Kerridge is not only a great friend of mine and Paul's, but also a properly brilliant chef. The Hand and Flowers in Marlow is the first pub in the world ever, I repeat, ever, to gain two Michelin stars. Tom being Tom, he's supremely humble about how it came to be such a success, but has a theory nonetheless. I'd, I'd held the star for two guides at Adlard's and I rang them up Michelin and I sent them my CV and I said, look, this is where we're at. But David, Adlard's restaurant was um, a formal neighbourhood Michelin-style restaurant with a pre-starter. Yeah. And, you know, and I was, we were going to a pub and I was doing shin of beef with a carrot and some mashed potato and I was doing soups and terrines as a star and a kind of like creme brulee and bits and bobs as a dessert and they, it was three of us in the kitchen and you were just going this is it this is all we're doing and we're not doing anything else with it so no i didn't expect to win a star not not that early i knew the standard of where we should be cooking and i did think that well all right i'm not doing fillets of beef but i'm doing the shin of beef but it comes from the same quality animal there's yeah. no reason why that should be looked upon any differently but you didn't know but mission were very much and always have been about the food, but the angst that you get as chefs, you always think it's got to be about this, it's got to be about the tablecloths, it's got to be... It's not. It's about the quality of the food and the consistency of it. And over that period of time, that first bit, they they, they they inspected us at least twice that I know of. Once they announced, once they came and had to announce because their car got broken into whilst they were whilst they were eating. <laughs> so they had, they came back into the pub and went, um, our car's been broken into. So Beth went out to help tidy up the glass and he had all his mission stuff at the back and he was like, 
now you know who I am. So it was like, so I, I, I ended up then having to go and speak to him going, I'm so sorry about your car. Like, I, like I, like, but actually it was one of the best moments because at that point then we had a normal conversation. His car has been yeah. shafted. I'm having a chat with him. We're just, I didn't ask anything stupid like, are we getting a mission start? Yeah, yeah. But it was just that conversation it removed any fear or any um, kind of nervousness that as chefs or restaurateurs you have about the Michelin yeah. Guide and the people. He was a really lovely guy whose job was eating out in restaurants and just making sure it was all consistent and nice. And you just go, actually, the conversation with him was lovely because it made me go, okay, so if we if we'll get something, great. The fact that I know they've been twice then was like, okay, so they're, they're, they're coming and yeah. looking. So that's quite good. We've just got to keep being consistent. Tom Kerridge on what distinguishes cooking at the very highest level. Before we go on, here's one final chance to take part in our fantastic competition. Genesis 2 is a premium gas barbecue that makes it easy to get great tasting food. The smart grilling hub is an accessory which connects to your phone via an app. It guides you step by step through preparing and cooking, even telling you when you need to flip your food and when it's ready to eat. For your chance to win this fantastic prize, head to weber.com forward slash grilling. That's weber.com forward slash grilling, where you'll be able to find the terms and conditions and the closing date for entries. The competition is open to UK residents only. The Weber website is also the place to find a host of tips for barbecuing in all weathers and seasons, as well as a fantastic range of recipes, from low and slow pulled pork to butterflied leg of lamb with anchovies and lemon. Now, we brought you a bonus episode on Boxing Day with the inimitable Andy Oliver. It was to be a Caribbean Christmas for her. And I've got to say, what she was cooking sounded absolutely mouth-watering. Well, I'm going to Antigua for a start, which is... Oh, for goodness sake. What? <laughs> so I'm going to be barbecuing at Christmas. Yeah, nice. yeah, yeah, whole fish. I'm going to barbecue whole fish and make like a sort of uh, chimichurri. So I'm going to get wild Antiguan herbs. There's a thing that they make in Antigua called bush tea, which -hmm. is what they give you when you're ill. And it's all sorts of weird mountain Antiguan herbs and shrubs and stuff. So I'm going to chop all that stuff up, blitz it down with garlic, really good oil. uh, But rub the, just slash whatever fish I can get, rub salt into it, get it on the barbecue so the skin goes really nice and crispy. And then put, make the, just add the chimichurri at the end. And lots of salads and and a ch- I really like. Do you know what a chow is? A mango chow. So it's no. like mango, just chopped up mango, chili, fresh coriander, a little bit of spring onion, and it's oh, just a beautiful. really nice like little garnish on the side of things. Oh, to be on a tropical beach again. In the meantime, we may have to stay a little closer to home. Cornwall. Rick Stein is genuinely one of my all-time food heroes. I still get a little bit kind of nervous whenever I meet him or get the chance to speak to him. So it was an absolute thrill to catch up with him on the pod. We talked about his restaurants, obviously, but we also discussed music and the fact he was more interested in being a DJ than a chef when he set up shop in Padstow. When I left um, university, I wanted to run a nightclub. Right. <laughs> but that, that in itself is weird, right? So you've got a degree from Oxford. So, of course, you come out of one of the greatest universities in the world and you decide you want to open a nightclub. Well, yeah. I mean, I suppose it was while I was at Oxford, I, I did quite a lot of sort of... I had a little disco, which I tra- sort of drove around Oxfordshire doing parties, mostly undergraduates' parties. 
and I enjoyed it so much. I thought, well, blow all this um, learning. All I want to do is run a disco. And it just so happened that in Cornwall, where I was spending a lot of my, I was living in, yeah, I was living in Cornwall at the time. There was a real need for discos in the summer. So I started running discos there as well. And they were successful. And then I found this nightclub on the quayside in Padstow, right? Now, I've often said this, that, that a nightclub on the quayside of Padstow is... It just doesn't happen. I often think it's like finding that opera house up the Amazon, you know? This is in the early 70s, because, you know, Padstow was a sort of small fishing village, right? Why did it have this nightclub? To this day, I don't quite understand why the guy that opened the nightclub <laughs> opened it. It was called the White House Club. So me and um, uh, my sort of best friend, we, got, we came into some money and we bought it off this guy and we opened it as a disco. And all would have been well, but for repeated fights, <laughs> mostly amongst the fishing community of Padstow. All of them now look back and say, well, I met my missus in your club. <laughs> that, was, that was some brilliant days. Anyway. <laughs> the one and only Rick Stein revealing to me how history could have been so very different had his nightclub license not been revoked. Our final guest on the current run of grilling was Adam Richmond, heat of man versus food fame. He's also become an incredibly close friend of mine and my son Hamish in particular. And while I know he must have been asked this question many times, I had to find out the best and worst challenges he undertook on the hit show. Favourite was in Alaska. It was a place called Humpy's Alaskan Ale House. And it was because rather than a big plate of one thing, it was a platter of a few different things. Uh-huh. So you didn't get what's called flavor fatigue, which is a real thing. I know that sounds kind of ridiculous. And everything was local. So reindeer sausage. And I remember I asked the chef, where do you get the salmon? And he walked me to the front of the restaurant and we were across from the water. He goes, that boat. I said, where do you get the crab? <laughs> he goes, that boat. Where wow. do you get? And I said, yeah. but it's Alaska. It's cold. Where do you get the berries? He's like, berries do very well in Alaska and Maine. And he said, Berries are, you know, third traffic light, hang a right, go down two miles. That's where I get our right. berries. So right. that, that was, and it was just wonderful. So eating that was um, really great. Uh, the worst would probably be the Munchies 421, 420 Cafe, the Wings one, because oh, yeah. they were uh, quite a bit cavalier with the ghost chili extract. And to anyone who wants to do these crazy hot challenges, people have lost their minds with the Carolina Reaper and the ghost chili. (laughs) Please be careful because it's so powerful. Police in India have begun to weaponize ghost chili extract in grenades. So please, please, please be careful. Because that that episode is I'm right in thinking that's the one where once you've kind of done the wings, you then weren't allowed to you weren't allowed to wipe your face. You then Oh, that was number two. That's that's the second uh, one. That's Santa Clara. That was yeah. a place called Smoke Eaters, and that was also hell on earth. But that one, it was somewhat manageable. The, having it on my face was terrible because I ended up with like a, a burn. And yeah. like I, I had done this and I had rubbed it into my hands. I could barely bend my hands. But no, the uh the one at Munchies was so bad. My like throat swelled up, my tongue swelled up and and you can't be cavalier. The best spice. It's the only spicy challenge I ever lost. And um, I I just, here's a little tip from your uncle Adam. If you're eating anything spicy, even if it's just like a hot bowl of ramen one night Uh or you're going out, you know, you're having a, a ruby murray <laughs> having a curry <laughs> nicely done good cheers, cheers mate so uh, 
you've been white rice for too long. <laughs> right. <laughs> At least my accents get better than when I was throwing Harry. When I was throwing Harry Red now. Very Dick, very Dick Van Dyke. Exactly. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> right, but let's not go into chitty chitty bang bang any further. <laughs> yeah. White white rice will help uh-huh. your stomach when the capsicum hits it. And I will put this as politely as possible. Eating banana in advance will help with an uh-huh. exit with an exit strategy. A top digestive tip there from Adam, who also had a host of practical advice about barbecuing, including the fact that you should put dents in your burgers before popping them on the grill so they're flat when they cook and they don't rise up. I like that tip a lot. Right, the moment you've all been waiting for, my choice of winner of our recipe challenge. Now, if you're new to grilling, we asked all our chefs to come up with a recipe they'd make for friends whilst cooking on the barbecue this winter. They had to sell me the recipe in just 45 seconds. Some nailed it, some rather fluffed their lines, but two stood out, Gok and Ainsley. And the winner, uh, it's so tough, but I think it's got to be Ainsley. I mean, just listen to this. I could listen to this all day, and it makes you feel happy, it makes you feel hungry, it makes you feel a little bit sexy. Who could beat a bit of jerk chicken under barbecue? Take an onion, take a couple of scotch bonnet papers, a bit of ginger, and literally grate it down, bit of uh, a bit of turmeric that's going to be about the size of your finger. Then I want you to add equal quantities, a little bit of spice too, a little bit of allspice there, a little bit of fresh thyme, add a little bit equal quantities of soy and white wine vinegar. Blitz that together, pour that over your chicken, cook that slowly. Then I want you to heat a bit of oil, put some mustard seed in there, and uh, let that pop a little bit, a little bit of cumin seed in there and then when you when you finish doing that you can grate your carrot pour that over the top of it squeeze some lemon juice you've got a perfect turn over your barbecue your meat is cooked and you serve that with your carrot cumin and lemon salad done yeah how good was that well there you have it some of my highlights from the first season of grilling though i could have chosen so many many more if you are a first-time listener do check out the interviews in full if not we much appreciate you for your ongoing support please rate us and leave a review if you haven't already and do tell your friends about us if you like what you hear it really does help Many thanks to Weber for giving us the platform to chat with all these wonderful chefs about their love of food and cooking. Head to Weber.com for loads of barbecue recipes and tips for cooking outdoors in all weathers and seasons. It really is an excellent resource for casual and serious barbecuers alike. That's all from us for now. Grilling is an off-script production produced by Ben Backhouse and executive producer Zach Brown. I'm Simon Rimmer. Thanks for listening. <laughs>